You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. The history of solar home systems is littered with the debris of well-intentioned donors who gave solar home systems to communities and households, but had absolutely no follow-up in terms of how they were going to be maintained. Why do the energy poor have to wait? For January 4th, 2023, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. According to a series of recent reports from the International Energy Agency, or IEA, the energy transition is coming along faster than ever. Its Energy Efficiency 2022 report, released December 1st, shows that global investments in efficiency in 2022 grew by 16% to $560 billion. The agency's World Energy Outlook 2022 report, released October 27th, notes that around 40% of global electricity generation is now clean, with 30% coming from renewables and another 10% from nuclear. Investment in clean energy has been outpacing investment in fossil fuels since 2016 and is now a full 50% greater. Global clean energy spending in 2022 alone is expected to exceed $1.4 trillion. According to the IEA's Renewables 2022 report released December 5th, the world is set to add as much renewable power in the next five years as it did in the past 20. Solar PV and wind power accelerates in all of the agency's World Energy Outlook scenarios, setting new records every year to 2030. Renewables are on track to overtake coal as the largest source of global electricity by early 2025, reaching 38% in 2027. By that time, solar PV alone is set to be the largest source of power capacity globally. However, in its World Energy Investment 2022 report from June, the agency noted that almost all of the growth in global clean energy spending is happening in advanced economies and China. The two-thirds of the global population that live in emerging market and developing economies, apart from China, are receiving less than one-fifth of the total, a situation that the IEA calls a cause for alarm. The reason? The high cost of capital. Not only is that a problem for the overall project of the energy transition, after all, ensuring that developing economies take clean energy paths into the future is absolutely essential. It's also a senseless waste because it costs about half as much to avoid emissions in emerging and developing economies as it does in advanced economies, according to the IEA's analysis. So what's the problem here? Why is the cost of capital so much higher in developing economies? Why is it still so much harder and expensive to finance clean energy projects than it is to finance fossil fuel projects in those countries? And what can be done about it? Our guest today believes he has some answers to those questions because he is grappling with them every day. Seth Kleinman is CEO and founder of Avolta Energy, a solar project developer based in Costa Rica. He has worked in the energy sector for over 25 years, including time as an oil analyst at PFC Energy, now part of IHS and S&P, an oil trader at Glencore and Hess, among others, and a managing director at Citibank, where he worked on energy projects in well over 100 countries. Since 2017, Seth has worked on distributed solar with a focus on multinationals and blue chip companies. 
Now, as our longtime listeners know, I generally eschew guests from commercial enterprises on this show because we are a subscriber-supported, non-commercial podcast. In fact, I go to great lengths to ensure that our show is not influenced in any way by commercial interests. But sometimes the only way to get the story is to talk to people who are engaged in commercial deals, and I believe this is one of those times. So during my recent stay in Costa Rica, I got together with Seth at his home in San Jose to talk through some of the challenges he faces in getting solar projects financed in Costa Rica and put that experience into a broader context based on his personal experience in working on energy projects all over the developing world. So if you've never heard anyone explain the different roles that commercial banks, investment banks, multilateral development banks, pension funds, and other sources of so-called patient capital play in the energy transition and how project finance flows through that ecosystem, hopefully today's discussion will leave you a bit more knowledgeable about it. Then in this episode's extra-long news segment, we'll consider the significance of a recent breakthrough for nuclear fusion research, we'll note a new financing partnership to support the energy transition in Vietnam, we'll recognize some newly unearthed research documenting how big oil companies have worked for decades to undermine the energy transition in the mind of the public, we'll review the results of the first offshore wind lease sale off the Pacific coast of the U.S., We'll chalk up a delay for the SMR project that is to be built in Wyoming, and we'll see how Vermont's innovative approach to decommissioning its nuclear plant is coming along. But before we go to the interview, insert the announcements clip, we'd like to give a warm welcome to our latest group subscribers. Los Angeles-based SoCal Gas is the largest natural gas distribution utility in the U.S., serving nearly 22 million customers. And the Canadian Climate Institute is Canada's leading climate change policy research organization. We're so pleased to have both those organizations on board. And now, our conversation with Seth Kleinman, recorded December 17, 2022. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Seth, to the Energy Transition Show. Hey, Chris. Great to be here. So for about 20 years now, I've said that if I could get unlimited capital at a 6% interest rate, I could change the world. I mean, just about everything we need to do in the energy transition could be done at that cost of capital. And that's not an unreasonable rate. I mean, it's downright high compared to the rates at which the major banks have been able to access capital since the great financial crash of 2008. I mean, there were quite a few years there where effective interest rates for things like 30-year bonds were negative. And all sorts of other major infrastructure projects, or for that matter, big fossil fuel projects like power plants and oil and gas production projects, have been able to get money at less than 6%. But every time I've asked someone in the finance industry why it's impossible to get money at 6% for the solutions of the energy transition, which we need to head off the existential risk of climate change, by the way, I just get this pile of excuses that sound pretty lame to me. So how would you answer that question? Well, first, I would specify that if you're looking for money for a utility scale project, especially if you're in the developed world, if you're in Europe or the US, I mean, there is cheap money available. Okay, we have seen some progress on financing the energy transition over the past X number of years. And in fact, that progress has accelerated since Russia, Ukraine kicked off, and it's definitely moving ahead fast on that. If you're going to build a 300 megawatt solar project in Germany or the US or Japan, there's money and might even get it for less than 6%. Where things get more complicated is once you move into the emerging markets, and that's where things change very, very quickly. So if you're working on a big utility scale project, even if it's in, say, a $250 million, $400 million solar plant, and you're in a Thailand or a Brazil, there's going to be cheap financing available. It's accessible, and it's a fairly straightforward process. 
But if you want to do something in a riskier part of the emerging markets, you want to do something like in a Turkey or a Myanmar or some even now like in a Colombia, somewhere with a very volatile currency where you're looking at currency risk and geopolitical risk, things are going to get more complicated. And that's where the money does start to get more expensive. But that's not crazy because the risk profile of the project is higher. You've got the currency risks and it can be expensive to hedge these things. The geopolitical risk, I mean, we've seen some of the impacts of policy change in Mexico. These are real risks and they need to be accounted for in the cost of money. But then you can look at some other parts of the sector. And this is what we at Avolta specialize in, is we're doing CNI, commercial industrial rooftop projects. And we're doing them for big commercial clients with big balance sheets, big companies that everyone's heard of around the world. We're in a safe part of the world, Costa Rica, Panama. They're boring countries from a geopolitical standpoint. Maybe there's some issues reputationally with Panama, but we don't have revolutions. Everything is USD denominated. Even the Panama currency is completely linked to the dollar. And that's where it's become very difficult, very tricky. Once you get into emerging markets in DG, you start to run into a series of walls. They just have not figured out. There is FDI money available and there's MDB money available. But if you look at how by the time it hits the street, by the time it hits the market, it's basically at market rates. And we've started to see more coverage of this. If you read the latest IA report, they're talking about how the high cost of financing in emerging markets is a problem. That's an understatement. Okay, when you're looking at financing solar, it can make or break the market here. And we need to 3x, 5x, 10x what's going on in solar. And we have the technology. And in theory, we have the financing. But because of the current state of market mechanisms, it's just not getting through and it's just not happening. A couple of acronyms I think we should unpack there. So I think you mentioned DG. So that's distributed generation. Rooftop solar. Rooftop Stuff goes solar. on the rooftop. Yeah, yeah behind okay. the meter. DRs, distributed energy resources, MDB is multilateral development banks. So these are things like the IADB, the World Bank, the IFC, the Asian Development Bank. Then you've got FDIs, foreign direct investment, but they tend to have a development focus, like various development banks, things like FMO out of Holland, Proparco out of France. These are public-private banks, and they have a development tilt. So if we talk about these different groupings of there are these various entities that are held up as the potential solutions for these financing problems. So there's the World Bank and the IFC, and that money will frequently go along with some national money into a bank like an FMO out of Holland or a Proparco out of France. So these are development banks. So these are banks that get a mixture of public and private money. And the idea is that they'll invest in emerging markets, usually with some kind of, usually through an ESG or a gender lens, various lenses that they apply. And they all have a development tilt. The idea is that they'll accelerate economic development in these emerging markets. And DG Distributed Generation is a great fit for their remit because of the impact that it has, it's not like it's building a big solar plant, which is effectively, from an economic development standpoint, equivalent to building a gas-powered plant, because it's just one big company that's going to build this one big thing, and then it's going to run. It has a very different impact on employment, which is what we've seen in the US. If you have 30, 40 different companies all employing 30, 40 different people running around on roofs, installing systems, engineers, making sales, it has a much stronger employment impact, which is exactly what we've seen playing out in the United States. Mm. Okay. So what is holding back rooftop solar from growing faster in these Central American countries in particular? So it's really two things. The local banks are the gatekeeper. And this isn't the case in, say, for example, in some parts of Africa, but when you're in, let's say, in Costa Rica and Panama, there's lots of banks. You drive around, you're going to see a whole bunch of different banks. And these banks are engaged in the sector. 
And they know their clients. Typically, they'll have the multinationals with the subsidiaries here, or if they're operating in a free trade zone, I mean, they're going to be dealing with these local banks. The problem, frankly, is that local banks are slow and they're expensive. Okay, And that's true really across the emerging markets. I mean, the cost of money is high. Costa Rica here is an OECD country, but it doesn't get banked like one. I mean, you're looking at interest rates at nine is a pretty normal rate here if we're financing commercial solar. And so what happens is when you see out of COP27, there's another commitment of a few hundred billion dollars, half a trillion dollars, whatever it is. And when you see these announcements by these international organizations that they're going to commit money towards promoting renewables in emerging markets, okay, that's great. That money's real. It does show up. The problem is it goes through a series of intermediaries sometimes. So let's say if it's going to come out of the World Bank and they're going to lend it to the IADB, and then the IADB is going to put a spread on it, and they're going to lend it to a Promerica, a local bank here. That local bank, it does have a commitment. They call it these green credits. So they get this money, and it's a bit cheaper than normal money for them. And they do want to go out and find, they're incentivized to find solar and other clean energy projects to finance, but they do it at market rates. So by the time all the various people, the various banks have added their spread onto it, it hits the street at market rates. So it may on the margin be pushing more money into solar, but it's not cheap money by the time it's actually getting lent out. So the money where it's originated at the very beginning of that chain, just explained, that that would be at 10% already? No, so that's going to be 4 or 5% right now. Okay, so it's 10% by the time it gets to the exactly. project level. Exactly. And part of that is because all these other intermediaries are taking their vig along the way. Exactly, exactly. And the other issue with the banks is they're slow. And that may sound mundane, but that can kill a project. You bet. Okay? I mean, it makes a huge difference. A, the industry as a whole, the sector, we want to go fast and we should be able to go fast, but it kills you as a company. And I realize that people can sometimes be a little bit dubious, perhaps, of the commercial sector. But the fact is, it's companies that are going to get this stuff done. It's the commercial actors. And it makes a gargantuan difference to the economics of the system. If you can get working capital ready to go so you can order the panels, if you have to wait a month and a half to get approval by the bank for the working capital, it starts to kill you. And then by the time you're actually going to get the money dispersed from the system, you'll have various benchmarks. By the time the system's ready to go, at this stage, you're going to get a certain amount of money from the bank. That's fine. But then they might take six weeks behind schedule. It throws everything off. And once you start compounding these factors, it has a massive implication in terms of how quickly we're rolling these things out. Right. And that ultimately leads to a higher project cost. Significantly, yes. Yeah. I think it's worth stressing is that it's just financing. Financing is the only problem here. And the sector's just all ready to go. The market's there. The returns are there. The companies have their ESG commitments. Everything's there. There's one problem, and that's financing these projects. Hmm. Like That's it. If you can solve that, this sector in a bunch of countries, it's not going to cure the planet, but I mean, it will let CNI Solar and a whole bunch of different countries go at 5x, 10x what we're doing now. The one thing that's holding it back is the slow, expensive financing. All right. So you just described a chain of at least three banks involved in the process. Mm -hmm. Why can't that chain be shorter? Why couldn't the World Bank, for example, or some other MDB directly finance the project? Why does it have to go through those other two banking intermediaries? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. 
When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On December 13th, the U.S. Department of Energy announced that nuclear fusion ignition had been achieved at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in what it called a major scientific breakthrough. The fusion reaction produced about 3.15 megajoules of energy output from 2.05 megajoules of energy input from lasers to start the reaction. The DOE described this net positive energy result as historic, and indeed it is. It's something that fusion researchers have been trying to achieve for over 60 years, as Energy Secretary Granholm said in an interview. At least it validates the idea that fusion ignition is something we can achieve. The DOE also called it a major step toward, quote, clean fusion energy, which would be a game changer for efforts to achieve President Biden's goal of a net zero carbon economy, end quote. But it didn't say when. Most journalists simply repeated the claims, going so far as to call it a holy grail, and suggesting that it could put clean fusion energy within reach in a few decades, if not sooner. A few tried to offer more thoughtful context, or at least had the good sense to acknowledge at the end of their articles, that there are many more steps over those decades that need to be taken to make the technology commercial. The Financial Times quoted the lab as saying that the exact yield was still being determined, and that the net energy gain can't yet be confirmed, partly because some diagnostic equipment was damaged in the experiment. But of the coverage I saw, only one author noted that it took 300 megajoules of energy to power up the lasers in the first place, meaning that about a 100-fold increase in energy output would have to be achieved before this particular experiment could really be called an energy break-even fusion event proving once again that nuclear energy is in the DOE's DNA, and that there's always a market for holy grail stories about energy. Item 2. On December 14th, Vietnam and the G7 industrialized nations, that's the United Kingdom, France, Germany, the United States, Italy, Canada, Japan, Norway, and Denmark, along with the EU, agreed to a Just Energy Transition Partnership, or JEP. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.